Hey everybody, welcome to the Night Watch Games podcast. This is session one of season one. Why do we play the games we play? And the idea is to put this into four different questions. One is, why do we play games at all? Why do we play the specific games that we play? The third session will be, why do we play games with the people that we do? And the last and final session would be, why do we play where we play? This is Brenda and... Warwick. <laughs> yep. We this got those Brenda, names right. Yep. Uh, and we are the host of the Night Watch Games podcast. And we're calling it the Night Watch Games podcast after hosting a contest on our initial, our initial uh, introduction. How did that go, Brenda? Well sort of anticlimactic actually. Um, so we, on the first intro podcast, we suggested that people chime in, write in, call in with a name suggestion, and that we would choose from those names, the best one that we thought would fit us. And then we would invite that person who won the contest to be on the show. And that is going to happen. And congratulations, Josh Hunter, you were the winner. Um, his suggestion was that we call it the Night Watch Games podcast. <laughs> Which, <And> <laughs> yeah, very anticlimactic. Uh, but let me show you some of the cool ones that we had uh, offered. One was the Castle Crier. Uh, then there's the Round Table, but that one's been taken from the Ramparts. But I don't think that really captures the Night Watch brand. Uh, the Night Watch Crier. <laughs> and then one of the worst suggestions that I heard from Brian Stride. Do you remember what that one was? The Pontification of Pork? <laughs> yeah, I think we'd lose... Uh, listeners if we did that one. So anyway, those were really great ideas. We appreciate everyone for their input. Uh, but I think we're going to go with the tried and true and very obvious low-hanging fruit of the Night Watch Games podcast. Uh, I want to start it off with a quote from the psychologist Martin Selgman, who provides the acronym of PERMA in his book, which is titled Flourish, A Vision, New Understanding of Happiness and Well-Being, to summarize the factors that seem to make people happy and obviously their motivations for why they do what they do. And he summarizes that there's several motivations, pleasure, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishments are some of the base motivators of why we do what we do. We invited some very interesting people into our studio and I want to go around the table and have them introduce themselves. Starting with my left is... I'm Travis White. Uh, in my real life, I'm a high school English teacher. Uh, I've been gaming, modern gaming, I'd say, since about 2001. And mostly once a week meeting with a game group. And that went well for a while. And then uh, the store where I was gaming kind of cut their hours back. So I was looking for a new place to game, and I walked into Nightwatch Games, and I've been here ever since. Um, and I play all types of games, board games, card games, tabletop, uh, RPG, some sort of the pan gamer. Uh, hey, friends. Uh, my name is John Navarrete. Uh, you can call me Nav. Um, in my uh, muggle life, I am an uh, entrepreneur and small business owner. I run a uh, branding consulting firm. And uh, I'm a designer and work with tons of creative people, web developers and copywriters, uh, building brands for companies all over the country. But uh, as far as gaming goes, uh, I've been gaming, boy, since um, Redbox Rules of D&D &D, and uh, primarily a role-playing 
gamer. I'm usually the DM or GM of the games. Although uh, as of late and as in the last several years, I've been doing a lot of character uh, character role playing, and that's been a lot of fun. Um, I consider myself to be a, a, a patron and a, a member of the Nightwatch gaming community, and uh, met Pork and Brenda shortly after they opened the store, and uh, have steadily been ramping up my time here in the store. So uh, you can find me in here playing just about anything. Uh, I do everything from role playing games to acting on. Uh, a podcast, and uh, lots of tabletop games as well. So next to Nav, we have... My name is Jonathan Fuller. Uh, since uh, Mr. Navarrete is going by Nav, you can call me John. I will take that gladly. Um, in my day job, I am a government contract content specialist, which means that I correct the grammar on uh, contract proposals. Uh, I have been a uh, dungeon master, storyteller, game master, keeper, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, for the last 28 years. Uh, I don't get to play in a lot of games, but I get to play a lot of games, if that makes any sort of sense. Uh, and I, for the last year or so, have been a part of the Nightwatch GM Watch program, where I run a series of one-shots uh, for the store for people who are new to role-playing games and uh, trying to get interested in the hobbies. And you can't see him now, but John is a very interesting character. Uh, some of his friends and now us call him the Great Owl. I'm gorgeous. <laughs> and naked. <laughs> <laughs> what you don't see on the podcast is that John has a beard that is half reddish brown and half stark white. And it makes him a very interesting looking character. We love John and I, Nav and Trav. I grew it myself. What's the earliest gaming memory that you have? Oh, Nav, you said that you were um, uh, that you've been playing since the Redbox rules. So, what, what's the what's the first thing that you remember? Boy, that was so. That's back in the day. You know, I I fell in love with the way Dungeons and Dragons modules were presented. I used to love shrink wrapped books, maps. Um, so, first memories are from some of those really early modules. Um, B one. Yeah, exactly. Oh, when yeah. they were all labeled Classic. with a letter and letter and number system, early memories are of drawing up characters on loose leaf paper, really marveling at, uh, you know, polyhedron dice and pressing crayon into the numbers. Yeah. Having to put the crayons in there mm -hmm. to read them. I think my, my memory is very similar to yours. And that was, I remember making a fort inside my bedroom and hiding out in the fort and looking at the Raoul Partha lead miniatures that were being made at the time and basing my character off of the items that were on that miniature. I didn't roll anything. I would look at the miniature and just assign it stats. And uh, that was the way I did all my characters. But I don't think I was playing that game correctly for a long, long time. My earliest was elementary school. I remember our library uh, had a couple of copies of, I want to say it was White Wolf. They were choose your own adventure books, but with the addition of being able to roll a die for skill tests. So you actually created a character on a sheet. You went through the choose your own adventure and that, that was probably the beginning. And earlier you mentioned the red box D and D thing. I do recall pulling a red box out of my dad's, like the game closet buried in the back. Nobody had ever touched it. And uh, going through it, it was 
probably two or three years before I'd actually get to sit down and play D&D. But I went through that first, just reading through, learning the game, imagining how awesome this would be to sit down and play. Uh, so it just kind of planted that seed. But that White Wolf was probably the first real thing that would I'd consider gaming. Mm-hmm. See, the, the first gaming memory uh, that I have was my brother very secretively slipping me a copy of The Fiend Folio from 2nd Edition mm-hmm. uh, and warning me that our mother uh, could not find out about it. They were boobies. Uh, well, not only, there <laughs> there were devils and yeah. demons, so like yeah. we hid that as quickly and as well as we possibly could. Uh, it was the it was the single biggest piece of contraband. We weren't interested in porn, <laughs> yeah. but you had to keep that fiend folio like hidden in the walls, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, it was it was a style of art that you could only you could only see on heavy metal albums, which were also likewise frowned upon in our house. <laughs> and then, sort of like Travis was saying, uh, I found uh, a friend of mine had an older brother who got tired of playing Vampire the Masquerade and gave his friend all of the books. And we split those sort of 50-50 and started running games for each other. And if you want to talk about art pulling you in, those books had it, man. It was amazing. Uh, So that's my earliest kind of start. Yeah. I think most of us grew up during the satanic scare of 1980s and having to wrestle with the, obviously, the misconceptions that role-playing games lead you down a dark, dark path. And it's interesting that, well, it's actually probably predictable now that I think of it, but the people that I consider my gaming friends all came from a very similar tradition of role-playing games. What was the first introduction to board gaming or dice gaming or card gaming outside of role-playing that you guys had? Um, family, family nights in the living room, playing Pictionary, or uh, mom pulling out a deck of cards on the kitchen table and teaching me spades. But I remember my brother and his friends playing D&D at the kitchen table and wanting to play. And I was telling him, <laughs> all you're doing is playing Barbies without Barbies. Why can't I play? I'm like, I can do that because I would have whole scenarios of Barbies, you know, Barbie got pregnant and, <laughs> and like the third trimester, Ken had an affair with Skipper and he got arrested because it was... She was like under 16 and then mom took the Barbies away, but yeah, she never did let me play with Nestor. <laughs> if you could play one game for the rest of your life, what would it be? I feel like role-playing games are sort of cheating here. They're the most dynamic. If you had the community and you had the stuff and you could, but I don't think that's the interesting answer. Uh, might I propose to the table that we split this into two questions because there are the the non-role-playing games, but we should also answer the role-playing game question in regards to which system. Okay. Because imagine you're locked into one system for the rest of your life. Now it gets interesting and cutthroat, and uh, we might end up throwing chairs at each other. <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, like I, I I agree. Like just saying, yeah, tabletop role-playing games. That that's a that's an easy out because that's. Uh, infinitely, you know, the only limits are your imagination. Uh, so yeah, what, what non, uh, what non role playing game would you, would you stick with? That's harder a little bit. I, I would play the game Mysterium for really? the rest of my life. Really? Like, no, that, no, 
If you have any sort of communication issues with friends or loved ones, play a few rounds of Mysterium with them and they will either disappear or they like, that <laughs> gap will widen horrifically and you will never look at that person the same way again. Oh, and it, it's a game that truly depends on the group you're playing with yes, and how well you and, know each and other. And each, each different person has, has a different method of communication. Yep. And when it's entirely nonverbal, you have to try and predict other people's interpretations of things and how they are attempting to convey that message with you with you okay john so do you always have to play the ghost when you play mysterium i, I find playing the ghost the most stressful game experience that i've ever had in my life like it, it it legitimately makes me anxious because i feel like i'm i i'm a i was a lit major and uh, uh and a former actor so using words is the core of how I communicate. Yep. And for I, those of you who don't know FFG's game Mysterium, when you play the ghost, you, you're not allowed to speak. Everyone else can talk. You can't. You can nod or shake your head. I can see how that would be hard for you. It is murder <laughs> to me. I, I, it, it literally makes me sweat. Do you go boo? No, no. I, no, no sound at all. I, I, I shake my head and I just kind of like, Please, please understand what I'm trying to tell you. In the game before, and I won't go on too far of a tangent, but in the game, there's a little uh, sand timer and you're supposed to be able to indicate to the players that time is running out, but you can't speak. So what do you do? Well, whatever I do is I grab the edge of the table and I shake it really hard. Oh, that's incredible. Like a poltergeist. Yeah, it works. So Pork, I want to hear what, uh, what game you would play. I think that answer would probably change as time went on, but currently is Guild Ball. And everyone's nodding their head around the table as not surprised. Because we all play. <laughs> well, we are. We're Guild Ballers. Uh, outside of role-playing, I think Guild Ball would be my answer. What do you think, Nav? Well, I mean, I, I love Guild Ball as well, and I'm, I'm intrigued by it. It's, it's chess on heroin. But um, I don't know that Guild Ball has true longevity to you know to fit the question of play it for the rest of your life kind of thing we, i think we live short ball, lives right, right <laughs> you know, uh, it, i think once you've mastered all of the guilds you know which will eventually happen then i think i think the interest would fall off i think it's just going to become like playing a game of chess or checkers i mean could you really do that for the rest of your life you can't we're all shaking our heads um but I love the game. I agree. I, uh, um, I'm a newcomer to the guild ball scene and, and it, it's got, uh, it's got its hooks in me as well. And, uh, I'm just amazed at how level after level is revealed, like the layers of an onion. Uh, just when you think you've mastered something, you suddenly see the table and the game in a whole new way, uh, every time you play. So, um, there's a, there's this element of discovery and that's one of the things that I think makes the game really sticky, really fun. But, but that's a tough question to answer. You know, what game for the rest of your life? Can't hold me to this because it's going to change in probably a year or two. But I, I would say Imperial Assault. Uh, uh, I yeah, really, yeah. really love Imperial Assault for the genius of how many different ways you can play the game. Yeah. Uh, skirmish mode, you know, which is 1v1. There's a campaign mode. Uh, you can play it by yourself. There's an app that's been wonderfully developed that is just absolutely incredible for solo players. And how much value you get out of the box is just incredible to me. Um, you know, it's, it's the first game that, uh, I, I really found that, uh, thematically just sparked my imagination. I never get sick of playing in the star Wars universe 
and it's got just the right amount of complexity for me in terms of the puzzle, the puzzliness, the the uh, crunchiness of it, if you will, um, to keep me really engaged. Um, and uh, the fact that I can play it by myself as well as with any number of other players offers just so much uh, flexibility to me. Um, so How sad are you that there is not a Jar Jar Binks model? Yeah, that, that pretty much sucks. <laughs> I, I actually proxied him. Um, yeah, and then I promptly set it on fire. Um, so no, I'm not sad at all, actually. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I read about online was the definition of a game. And I think we've all heard the expression that life is a game. And the guy that was talking uh, was trying to explore that expression. But he goes on to define what a game is. And it's basically a set of rules that have a, an agreed upon win condition in which in the game, the win and the conditions matter. But outside of the game, they don't. Mm-hmm. And it's so this juxtaposition between something that has a lot of meaning within its small confines but once you're out of the game, it has very little meaning, and therefore it's a, a risk-free zone and where you're That ties in life. with what uh, John Fuller was saying a little bit earlier, was that uh, you have these important decisions to make high reward, low risk. Exactly. And you get to practice some of the real-world decision-making that you can in a low-risk uh, environment. But another interesting fold to the definition of game was that there are real-world implications of participating in the game, whether that be social, you're increasing the relationships around the table. That's a real world result of gameplay, or it's a skill. You're getting smarter, more intelligent, or analyzing better, whatever the the metric is. Uh, But that I thought was an interesting definition of gaming is a set of rules with an agreed upon objective that has great importance within the game but very little importance outside of the game, but still results in a real world like a benefit. Benefit, benefit. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, like Travis yeah. was saying, it's his form of escapism, right? Um, so that could be the real world benefit is that you get that downtime where you don't have to think about the real world. So now you're got well, this sort of meditative thing that you get to do. Let's be honest, uh, all the games we play are ultimately simul- simulations. But it's not just the fun of it. It's not just the social aspect of it. Um, there's definitely, and not just the knowledge gaining aspect of it, the historical knowledge, all of that. There's a therapeutic element. Oh, there's ab- a absolutely. mental health element. It's like I tell my wife, hey, it's cheaper than therapy. <laughs> I need my once a week. And, and I think she would be the first to tell you he needs his once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, if I miss a few weeks of gaming for some reason i'm probably you know not the person right they want to be around well Um, and there is definitely something especially role-playing games i mean there's a whole lot of psychology and um let's talk about something that's related there uh the therapeutic effect of gaming uh that goes to without saying that the social energies around the table are positive and you're able to get something positive out of that. What do you guys do when you're in a gaming group where there is somebody that is not exhibiting sportsmanlike behaviors and they're bringing down the rest of the group? Um, isn't that what you call cheek total party kill? Like you just, um, maybe even a board game though. I and mean, what would you do then? You got somebody that's 
Take them to the Sarlacc pit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This actually comes up sometimes at the event that we host here at Nightwatch Games called Ladies Night. Um, Not all gamers are created equal. And every once in a while you have somebody that uh, doesn't learn visually. They need to read the rules while you're talking them through the game. And the goal here is that I'm going to learn the rules so that you don't have to, but I'm going to teach you the game. And it just doesn't work for them. So they have to read the rules or maybe they just are on their phone or something and they're not paying attention. And then you get into the game and every time it's, okay, what do I do? Where am, where are we? What's going on on the table? So unfortunately, at least in that situation, we suffer through it. And then you just try not to play a game with that person again. <laughs> Yeah, with with the uh, with the GMs watch one shots. There is a, I mean, it, it is. I designed the one shots to be very very basic. You know, they're they're not really complex situations. It's just you arrive. Here's how you know everyone else. There is an obstacle. Do you beat the obstacle? Yay! Congratulations. There have been times where people have had disruptive play styles or uh, disruptive attitudes. And you just kind of have to set an expectation of you, you know, for example, at my table, you're not the hero of the story. The party is the hero of the story. Either the party succeeds as a whole or the party fails as a whole. And every time uh, something disruptive to that ethos comes up, then you have to remind the person responsible, hey... You can't do this without the party. Some people are not naturally empathetic. No, no. And, and, but that, that kind of has to be drilled in and taught. Uh, now, outside of the one-shots, if people are, are acting in ways that are disruptive or unsportsmanlike uh, or, God forbid, cheating, uh, we politely but firmly ask them to leave. We don't yeah. invite them to the table. I certainly uh, would not suffer through anything that was disruptive or no, no, especially offensive. especially not in games where where you require a portion of your time to prepare and and continue on. When you have the emotional investment in it, you have a social contract with your players that has to be upheld. Yeah, trust. I think Nav talked to us about trust and how our role-playing group, as productive as it is, is really based on a trust of uh, one having all the same goal but similar styles. One of the things that I find that is interesting regarding our responses to this question is how different our answers would be 10 to 15 years ago where we didn't have the freedom to fire Joe because he's a bad player or a bad person or whatever, because Joe was all we had. The number of gamers out there were few, and we were really kind of desperate to take whoever would sit at the table with us, and we had to endure whatever those personalities were. I think the industry is now at a stage where we don't have to do that, and we have a lot more power to fire Joe, the bad gamer, because there are five to ten other people that would take his space if we just invite them. And I think uh, that empowers us a great deal so we can be a lot more discerning about what to do with a, a non-productive player. Unfortunately, nobody is reforming Joe. <laughs> so the Joes are just wandering around. and Well, they game together, I think. Oof. Well, I'm going to go out on the limb here, and I'm actually going to quote our, uh, 
our, our wonderful podcasting host here, Porik, uh, I remember when I started playing in uh, Porik's D&D campaign, we were having a long talk about uh, some of the challenges that DMs face in in staying engaged in the game. How do you keep it fresh? How do you how do you keep it fresh not only for the DM but for the players? And, you know, there there really is considerable time that a DM puts into preparing for a campaign, and there's just nothing more demoralizing than for all of your hard work to just come unraveled for any number of reasons. Whether it's somebody doesn't show or or players misbehave or they don't take what you're doing as seriously as you had intended and all of those things can be can just bring down your house of cards real fast as the dm but but porik said to me he said and i quote he says no one is going to care about your campaign as much as you do meaning you the dm i think one of the reasons that i really enjoy playing the games that i do play and playing with the people at the table is because that level of care uh, that gap between that level of care that the DM has and the players have is minimized. There is a, an immense amount of care and respect for the integrity of the quality of the game. And that means that players are honoring that contract. They are coming to the table. They're bringing their A game. There's a certain amount of cutting up and, and you know, joking around and, and keeping, keeping it... Uh, uh, light, but in the end, everybody really genuinely cares about furthering the story, doing their best possible job role playing. They do their homework outside of, outside of the gaming table, and uh, and that that is a, that's a powerful powerful dynamic. Um, and it, it's so it comes down to really you got to find the right people around the table. And if you do have somebody at the table, if it's a pickup game or a one shot, and you got somebody who's being unsportsmanlike or and we have all of these categories for what we consider to be a bad gamer, right? We talk about the min-maxers. We talk about the rules lawyers, the hobo killers. You know, these are all all you know, stereotypical uh, character types. Um, you know, but if you get one of those at the table, right away, what you should be thinking is the social contract is being broken. You got to get them out. And and w- I don't tolerate them. I will not tolerate them. My, you know, quite selfishly, my time is too precious. And uh, my expectation for what I want out of the game is at such a high level that if somebody is bringing it down and, and uh, you know, torpedoing my game, um, I have no qualms looking them straight in the face and, and, and setting them straight, telling them, hey, that's not acceptable for the following reasons. And if you don't want to abide, there's the door, buddy. We've uh, fired a few gamers <clears throat> in our time. Well, the interesting mm-hmm. issue, well, our D&D group has taken 20 years to form. I've been trying and trying and trying to build a group that was very much in line with what I want and the social contract as I was providing it. Uh, it took 20 years to find compatible mindsets that were uh, in line. And I, there were times when I just thought it was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like the dark times of my gaming world where I just didn't think people played games the way I did. And uh, so meeting these yahoos around the table now was <laughs> a huge renaissance for my interests. I actually remember the email that you referred to earlier in the podcast that came from Nav yep. after y'all had met. And he asked me, do you think this guy's for real? <laughs> I said, no, I think he's a Soviet spy. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think he's for real. Yeah, I think we all discuss Nav and I'm 
think this might be a good time to go ahead and apologize to you for making you play an NPC as an audition of sorts. Right. Um, I was skeptical. <laughs> I was trying to protect that game, <laughs> protecting the the group. I didn't know this guy. But that was the right thing um, to do, by the way. That that I have mad props and respect for what you did. You know, that told me your level of care for the game was where I wanted it to be. Yeah. Yeah. It worked yeah. out. Yeah. Oh, we were nervous. We were so nervous. But, <laughs> but you're still a dick for making me yeah. Like once we get them in, how do we get rid of them? Yeah. <laughs> so Every- there was a there was a um a thing that's been kind of floating around the the internet for a while uh that is the geek social fallacies. And the first one is that being exclusionary to people is inherently wrong. That social fallacy is there because so many of us in the hobby, and especially, you know, uh, uh, those of us from an older crowd, when it wasn't in the pop culture uh, milieu, it was not in everybody's mind. Uh, It wasn't seen as cool or socially acceptable. Uh, A lot of us were ostracized because of our passion for these games. So we developed that emotional response that we can't ostracize anybody or we're just as bad as the guys who treated us like crap, you know, back in junior high. Uh, but that isn't the case. You, you don't have to be uh, tolerant of, of intolerant people, for instance, at your table. You don't have to navigate those missing stairs. You are in control of your table. You are the one who sets those rules and guidelines. And if people do not adhere to them, whatever they may be, they do not have a right to you. Yeah. John, I've always loved your um, explanation of the missing stairs. Would you mind giving that explanation to the audience? Yeah. Um, uh, a missing stair is, um, is somebody who in a social group you will warn newcomers against. So I, I apologize to anybody out there named Bob. I'm going to use the name Bob as a <laughs> as an example. <laughs> Uh, for instance, if you invite a bunch of friends to a party and say, okay, you know, it's going to be a really fun time, except watch out for Bob. When Bob is drunk, Bob gets kind of handsy. Now, nobody has taken the time to address Bob's behavior because they're all afraid of the repercussions of having to be the one to be mean to Bob and telling Bob to leave. It's like going to a house with a staircase and they say, hey, watch out, third stair up is missing. We haven't fixed it because it's easier for us all to just tell people to avoid it rather than hire the contractors. Uh, Somebody has to address the missing stair or they will erode social groups from within. And I think that is the, the thing that matters. It's perfectly fine to tell somebody you don't fit with this group you need to go find somewhere else you need to tell them why and you need to just express it openly uh, this is something you can imagine again back to a high school game club they're all excited about dungeons and dragons now they all want to come in they all want to be dms and a lot of them are just bad just from day one just in it for the wrong reasons you had the adversarial dm that just wants to destroy all the other kids with their you know brilliance and everything and just pulling these kids aside and it helps that they're kids and i'm a teacher it's my job i get to pull them aside and coach them and talk to them and And you have that de facto authority yeah and and (laughs) uh give them all those 
you know, good GM tips, try to get them on track and then, you know, kind of monitor from a distance with adults. It's a little different. You just want to say, Hey, you've had your, you know, chance to figure things out in life. Um, so I think it's perfectly fine to tell somebody to hit the road, just tell them why, yeah. because it might, they might be that the missing yeah. stare thing. No one's ever really, everyone's so afraid they'll go outside, uh, during the break and I'll talk about the person, but no one's talking to the person. Right. Yeah. The the only answer to a missing stare is the necessary bastard, which is the one person who's like, okay, I don't, I'm all right if Bob doesn't like me, and if everyone else likes me less because I was mean to Bob, Bob, stop grabbing people. Nobody thinks it's funny. Now, you may get some pushback, like, hey, man, Bob's going through some stuff, you know, like, like ease up on him. You might get some pushback from it, but at least something has been addressed now. At least, you know, now you're starting to rebuild that staircase. Either the behavior changes or the person leaves the social group. And those are the only ways to fix it. And somebody mentioned that a lot of game groups are made up of like personalities. Uh, I've stumbled into a few online where I try to go and play uh, Roll20 and join campaigns. And day one, you realize these are all bona fide hobo killers. Mm -hmm. Um I'm in a group of madmen, and then you have to kind of ease your way out of that and go find the group that works for you. Um, it takes maturity, though. I mean, I can see a bunch of young 20-year-olds having trouble doing that, having the confidence oh, to do that, uh, knowing at that point in their life that they can do that. Um, we're all in our 40s here, right? They're and close to. So, we, yeah. I think I'm the baby of the group. Are you? But, yeah, but I'm like edging right up on it. Like, you got more <laughs> white hair there. than me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you dye yours, hon. That's not fair. Good. Hey. <laughs> so, uh, but but I I think that as like like our as we're we're sort of the uh, uh, we're the younger side of the elder generation of the people that run these games. You know what I mean? Like like we have the experience. The the kids these days. Um, <laughs> They can only learn if we give them those kind of examples. Yeah. And right now, like, like you said on, on Roll20, uh, that place is, is a different social contract than doing it face-to-face. There are less consequences. You know, anonymity and the internet lead to exaggerated behaviors from people who aren't, uh, who aren't coming with the best of intentions. It allows you to get away with more. Whereas there is a sense of, of social normacy that is provided by a culture uh, of other gamers. And we can leverage our authority as the guys who have been there and been doing this longer to kind of promote those good behaviors. Not only among players, but also among other DMs. Uh, you know, telling them like, hey, make sure that you make very explicit the goals of your table and the kinds of behavior that you would find acceptable and the kinds of behavior that will get you ejected from the table. You have to put those rules right out front and center. The zero session. Precisely. Zero That's session. the point of the right. zero session. Yeah. yeah. We do something very similar here at the store in a broad way. Uh, there's the idea of exclusive inclusivity or inclusive exclusivity, however you want to see it. But it's the idea that you have a standard that you want to set and then you uphold that standard through... Uh, very forthright and direct communications with those people that are outside of the parameters that you've set and then being consistent and fair with upholding that standard. And I think this happens even outside of role-playing games or running a store. 
But board games and card games, if you're playing Magic the Gathering or Dice Masters or any number of uh, board games that you're sitting across from somebody, there's that intrinsic contract that I think some of us maybe take for granted and some of us come to the table totally ignorant of. And I think that because gaming is such a booming industry that it does empower us again to have the fortitude to give a knife hand to somebody and say, look, you're being an ass and I'm not going to play with you if you continue being an ass. And not only am I not going to play with you, there's nobody here that's going to play with you because I'm going to tell everybody that you're an ass. Stop being an ass. And here's what not being an ass looks like. Um, For us to do that, I think us as the veteran players and the adults in these kind of social circles, there's some responsibility that falls upon us to provide that feedback and be the enforcers of it. I don't think we should look to the 20 year olds as being, you know, the enforcers of social standards, not that they don't have it, but they're mixed up in social pressures that us as 40 plus year old gamers aren't involved in. Hmm. I'm going to play devil's advocate on that one. I find that if I am trying to be creative and playing a role, um, if I'm second guessing what is coming out of my mouth, if I am second guessing any expression whatsoever, uh, I feel hamstrung creatively. And, and, uh, so, I mean, what, what, how would you, how would you address that? Because it's it, any time where, uh, you know, you're, you're told you are going to be this character and this character has this, you know, X, Y, Z demeanor. Maybe the character you're playing is a jerk. Maybe the character you're playing is not a fair person, you well, know, I'm- and, uh, to have to tiptoe around certain words or certain phrases and then to say, but that's just the way the times are today, uh, that that to me feels like censorship. The foundational element of having an inclusive table is to care for the players on a level that is greater than the characters. Uh, uh, I have played homophobic characters. I have played flat-out racist characters. Mm-hmm. I have played characters of incredible vulgarity. But there is that understanding that those are roles. And uh, there is a difference between the in-character and the out-of-character. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I, I absolutely yeah. couldn't agree with you more. And that's that's the thing. But I, I feel that, you know, we, we were touching on the differences between younger generations and and us crusty old old guys. <laughs> uh, Get I, off my I, lawn. You know, there's, there is a tendency, I think, for younger folks, um, and I, I hate to generalize because this is a broad brush statement, but... In my experience, they don't like being called broads, Nav. <laughs> What's wrong with being a broad? Uh, Nothing. There you, there you go. <laughs> and this bleeds into the gaming environment, and Which, and that becomes you know, problematic for me when I am like Travis, looking at gaming as an, es- an escape, right from from the troubles of real world. And here, I want to be unfettered and able to say and do as I please, knowing that whatever comes out of my mouth is in the vein of a character. Of right. a role. As long as it's yeah. in the character yeah. and as long as the rest of the table has that understanding. Sure. Uh, because otherwise we run the risk of, of completely defying uh, introspection and self-evaluation. And then we come here and do the things, do and say the things that we want. And they might be awful things. Sure. Like that is something that we have to make sure. No, no. My character is the asshole, not me. Yeah. Like, I ah, no, no, I do yeah. not believe these things. Yeah. Uh, and as long as those expectations and rules are set, 
in advance. That's why I say be really explicit about the kind of a, the kind of, of behavior that, that is acceptable at the table and B, the kind of game that you want to run. Mm-hmm. If you want to run a game that, that has, uh, that has those darker elements, uh, then by all means you should, you just need to make sure that your players are on board with that. You have to have that in the social contract that everyone agrees to. You certainly don't want to spring it on somebody who is trying to escape that sort of judgment and fear in their real life because they're coming to escape as well. That's one of the questions that I'm going to ask in a different season or session. Session three is actually focusing on why do we play with the people we do? Mm -hmm. And I think that's intrinsic into that contract that is uh, agreed upon when you compile any kind of social network of people using games as the medium is that there are going to be different boundaries for different groups. It's, I think that's just a normal social dynamic. And I think it's important that we discuss what that boundary is before the gaming happens. Um, how would you justify slash describe your hobby of gaming to a non gamer? You know, we went through a dark age where, uh, certainly, role playing was frowned upon by many people, uh, and then there was the age of which gaming was not productive pastiming; it was sort of a waste of time. And we're also wrestling in today's current age, gaming being such a huge label, such a huge category that when you say that you're a gamer, a lot of people assume that you know your hands are on a controller and you're playing a video game. When in your mind, you're, you're referring to something very, very different. So how do you describe your passion and why you play games to people that don't game? I touched on this earlier when we were talking and saying that there's sort of an analog between literature, uh, reading a novel or a story, and you have small obstacles that lead up to a larger obstacle, um, this progression of narrative uh, the difference being that you get to participate in that narrative but over time i've had to kind of tweak that a little bit because there are a lot of people who don't read (laughs) that's the world we live in strike one and then there are a lot of people now who are like you said they're thinking video games Uh, even my game club at school i have to say everything except video games um, just to let them know what exactly we do uh, in that club so now I tweak it to where I'm explaining, well, it's just like your video game, except got a couple of couple of small differences. One, it's not always as smooth because you are having to do some of the bookkeeping, some of the tracking, uh, some of the mechanics of a game are being handed off to you to keep track of things that the video game does for you. Now, some people don't like that, and some people learn to love that. There's something tactile, uh, and uh, even though I, as a personal example, bad at math. That's why I'm not a competitive gamer. Um, <laughs> that's why I'm a thematic gamer. I'm supposed to be an astronaut right now, and I'm not. <laughs> um, but there is something about seeing the mechanics that look behind the curtain of something, seeing how the engine works, that you get in tabletop gaming that you do not necessarily, you're not supposed to see in video gaming now. Uh, And the other aspect would be the social. It's 
people always cry in video gaming about the good old days of couch co-op. Well, we still have it. It's on the tabletop. You're across from the people. You're with the people. Um, you're not, you know, yelling obscenities through a headset to some 10-year-old uh, miles and miles away. Yeah. Um, you can slap the cheater. True. they're right there. You can kick them out. <laughs> but those two things, I think you have the social thing and then you have this. There is something about the hood is open. You're seeing the mechanics. You're having to actually reach in and play with some of them. Uh, whereas video games have taken all of that away or should, I guess, a lot of it. Yeah, that, that's a tough question, Porik. I, I find that, uh, I mean, your question is specifically, how do you describe it to non-gamers, right? So people who don't necessarily have a context. I, you know, I have a problem with the word hobby. Um, I, I, the word hobby, it, at least in my mind, is it's it's not powerful enough. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, I have a lot of family from um, from Mexico, for example. So not only do we have uh, a cultural barrier to to cross when I'm explaining to people from Mexico what I do, but then there's the language barrier as well. So fortunately, I'm fluent in Spanish, but still trying to explain to somebody who has absolutely no idea what in the heck I'm talking about and has no historical pop references to anything. You know, I could say Dungeons and Dragons and it's meaningless to them. It makes for a very difficult conversation, but I find that the word hobby, um, you know, collecting Hummel figurines is a hobby. And sorry for all you folks out there who collect Hummel figurines. They're awesome. Nerds. Yeah. It's an investment. <laughs> but uh, I, I tend to say it's, uh, it's just one of my passions in the same way that music is one of my passions. Um, acting is one of my passions. Uh, you know, reading fantasy sci-fi novels is a passion of mine. So I tend to explain, uh, I tend to avoid the word hobby. I'm, I'm a gamer, not a video gamer. I, I end up saying what I'm not before I actually say what I am. So to, to, to Travis's point, you know, you, you sort of have to go come at it that way. I'm not, not a video gamer. We do tabletop games and I typically append the word, but they're adult oriented tabletop <laughs> games, which sometimes gets me in trouble. Yeah. Not yeah. adult content. Not adult content or not, not adult films. And people start to go adult. So sometimes that's a bad word, but it tends to come out of my mouth a lot. Say that you're orchestrating projected realities onto yeah. an alternative matrix or use big words. Yeah. A, a lot of the euphemism that I've used, especially for uh, tabletop role-playing games was uh, collaborative, dramatic, improvisational acting. Cause they know what that means. Cause, yeah. cause they're, Oh, Oh, you're part of a troop. And I'm like, Spanish? no, no, I cannot. <laughs> but uh, Nav can help me translate later. <laughs> sure. Uh, but for, you know, for, for other games, uh, man. Uh, so to wrap up this session, uh, you've got some, very different inputs on why we do what we do. Uh, and there's some common ground there. And then there's also some very deep personal uh, needs and views on why we do what we do. What I would like to do is hear from you guys in the comments. Why do you play the games you play? Not necessarily the particular games we'll play. We'll actually explore that next session. But why do you play games versus spending your money on any other number of hobbies or slash passions. Uh, why do you pick games? Uh, so hopefully this podcast has gotten your mind engaged and your gears churning and thinking about why you do what you do. And hopefully night watch games finds its place in that answer. Uh, if we could give a, a round of, uh, goodbyes to Nav, Trav and John Fuller. This is Brenda. 
And Warwick. Signing off for Night Watch Games. Aventura Espera. <laughs>